0: Good, I'm, I'm Josh. If I haven't met you yet, welcome to Grass of the Well. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, it's my privilege to start a new message series today. Uh, we are going to go through the the experience of community and how Jesus calls us to community, not just into community, not just just show up and be a part, but like community as a lifestyle, and how we find uh, flourishing in the midst of Christian community. And so, if you, are, if you are new here and you are, uh, maybe you're just new to Manhattan and you're just making a life transition and you've decided to come and check our church out, we welcome you. Uh, we are a little bit of our history before I dive in because you might have seen some of it on the website, but, uh, and you've decided, to, you know, it intrigues me enough to show up and figure out what's going on. We are, we are two churches that have merged together and are, have created a new, uh, a new plant, a new work. Uh, that we believe God is doing here in Manhattan, the Greater Manhattan area. So we had Tallgrass Church and and the Well Church, and we've been meeting together for over a year now, coming up on eighteen months, and it's been it's been a phenomenal time. It's it's quite a um, a testament to the power of the gospel that unites because we see so many church divisions today. Um, now we we did catch each other kind of at a downswing moment uh, in, in the the covid pandemic that, that caused us to be open-handed enough to say this is hard you want to hang out together and uh, we figured figured we should keep taking next steps but in the midst of that god does uh, beautiful things in the midst of the, the broken brokenness that we experience and so we're going through a revisioning process right now where we are clarifying our new vision and mission choosing a, and landing on a name tall grass of the well has been great but it's been a placeholder to like share the story and uh here hopefully sooner rather than than later and i don't even know what that arbitrarily means but we are rounding the corner on some very important uh decisions to to carve out that new identity of what god is doing so we invite you into the midst of all the mess of figuring out and discerning what god is up to and uh, we're just so glad you're here today worshiping with us and so with that said um In the 1950s, in New York City, there was a regular meeting of mismatch acquaintances that had been occurring already for the better part of a decade. So, 40s, 50s, and even into the 60s, this group uh, was meeting. Mismatch, because they were from differing backgrounds of scholarship, ethnic makeup, gender, artistic expressions, and yes, even politics. It came to be known by historians as the New York intellectuals. Hitler's Holocaust had already come to a close, but its full horrors were still being discovered. And the woman at the center of the conversations was Hannah Arendt, a German Jew who had escaped her arrest by the Gestapo and fled to the United States. So if you were to put your ear to the apartment door of these dinner parties, you would hear the clinking of cocktail glasses and a rousing laughter which interrupted prolonged shouting matches. But there was no aggression and there was no malice involved. The club was united by a passion to debate and seek the truth in order to avoid anything nearing the Holocaust ever again. So Lissa Wilkerson, who is an author and a, a film critic, she wrote recently in Vox uh, about the radical power of friendship on this, this gathering. She said this, It was a reoccurring reincarnation of her tradition stretching back a century or more to the European salons run by women, often Jewish women, with a keen interest in ideas, art, and people. This movable feast went on for decades with new faces, new concerns, but always the same goals, to find oneself among friends or frenemies, lovers and former lovers, colleagues and cordial nemeses, and hash out what was going on in the world while nourishing the soul and the stomach too. You can see why this group of intellectuals mattered to it. They helped her think, but also modeled a crucial concept, Revolutions may be happening all over the world, but right here in this little group, in this little apartment, among friends and frenemies, the subversive potential friendship was constantly unfolding. Uh, you may not know of, of Hannah Arendt, but she would go on to write at length about the danger of, dangers of totalitarianism and the destruction that it leaves in its wake. Many of the ideas she has come to be respected for most likely began as concept wrestled with in that to- tiny cloister of confidants. But a couple years later, a couple decades later, really, a shift began to take place in American culture. Robert Putnam described it in his book, Bowling Alone, as a decline in social capital expressed in a waning interest in civic and communal engagement. His research noticed how, since the 1950s, there was a continued loss in membership in organizations such as the Knights of Columbus and the League of Women Voters. He most aptly used bowling leagues to illustrate his point. The number of people who, who bowled had increased in 20 years before his research, but the number of leagues had plummeted. More people were bowling than ever before, just not together. We know that many people still do come together for social purposes, such as intramural sports, online forums, or church groups like us, right? But recently, there have been studies released on what is called the Law of Group Polarization, This research says that more people group together, the more people group together with others who are only like-minded like they are, they become more extreme in their thinking. And if you listen to the Holy Post podcast, which I highly recommend, David French has been on there talking about this a lot, especially recently. It's a sort of groupthink where you grow more out of touch with how anyone outside the tribe thinks, and you even become more threatened by beliefs that contrast with your own. The group is more likely to increase rigid rhetoric and cast anyone in another camp as dangerous and threatening to them. So we face twin dangers today. First, that our culture pushes us ever further towards loneliness, which is only heightened by digital disembodiment. That we're constantly scrolling alone on a couch. Probably with something streaming on Netflix at the same time. Okay. Second, the other danger, because we are social creatures and we will most likely seek out the building of relationships, but we'll do so in homogenous grouping, which tend to push us to- towards radical groupthink that labels and dismisses anyone unlike the group. So, how do we find flourishing? and offer healing in our divided world. We believe that the kingdom of God offers a better way, a way that unites people and offers hope and healing. It doesn't look at the world, doesn't look at the culture and say, well, I have no idea how to do anything about that. The kingdom of God and and the values that we live by as citizens, a part of it, we believe actually offers a solution, not just to our own loneliness or our own polarization, but actually does so in a way that causes us to open up our arms and invite people who are unlike us towards us in friendship and in community. What we should realize is that the division that we experience today is not unique to our own time. Throughout history, humanity has struggled to understand and accept each other. This is a world that the writers of the New Testament are intimately familiar with, which makes it relatable to us. Derwin Gray and Frank Viola and an article they wrote called The Race Card of the Early Christians, said this, the world of the first century was littered with racism and oppression. In the mind of a first century Jew, Gentiles, Africans, Romans, Greeks, Syrians, Asians, and so on, were created to fuel the fires of hell. When a Jew called a Gentile uncircumcised, he spit it. It was a name of profound contempt. If a Jewish person married a Gentile, the Jewish parents held a funeral service for their child. In their eyes, the child was dead. On the flip side, Gentiles regarded Jews to be subhuman. Historically, the Jews have been an oppressed people living under the thumb of one Gentile nation after another. Egypt, Syria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, so on. In all of human history, there has never been so much animosity, hatred, and violence between two groups of people as there has been between Jew and Gentile. So we understand this divisiveness we relate to two warring sides. We see it go on in our world and we look back through, through the scriptures and throughout history and we see the same patterns being repeated. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul writes about in his letter to the Ephesians. In his epistle, he describes the brokenness of all humanity that they've experienced, we've experienced, and the resulting alienation from God. Our sin has put us at odds with our Creator. But into this canyon-wide chasm, Jesus entered and healed the rift with his sacrificial death. Jesus has made a way for two sides to be healed and united once again. But even more than this, Jesus' work has also made it possible for humanity to heal the divides that plague it. If If Jesus can bring healing between God and humanity, how much more so does Jesus offer the answers for us to figure our own issues out between each other? So this is how Paul describes All of this in Ephesians 2, verse 11. It says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by the human hands. Remember that at a time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, without God in the world. Remember, he's writing to a church, a young church that he helped start in the midst of the Roman Empire that were by and large Gentile in nature, non Jew. Okay? So he's reminding them, remember, there was a point at which you were you were separated, alienated from God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, our shalom, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself, for himself, we we could even say, one new humanity out of the two, making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and preached peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consider that again, by, by Jesus, through him, we both, those who, you, you might even think of those who grew up in the church and those who, who never have had any Christian upbringing. Those who were near, those who are far, still needed access through one man, Jesus Christ. And through him, we both have equal access. You don't get credit for the amount of time that you grew up in the church. You don't get credit for, for some big salvation moment or experience. We all need Jesus equally. We all need the cross equally. Equally, it levels the playing field on whatever your background has been, whatever your behavior has been. We all need to approach God through Jesus. Through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Con- consequentially, you are no longer for- foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. So Paul describes the church as being made up as Jews and Gentiles. So so think of all the people most likely to never get along who now worship God in unity and are a witness to the power and the goodness of God. He has broken down every wall we've ever possibly erected against each other. Black and white, Russian and Ukraine, Union Confederate, Democrat, Republican, East Coast versus West Coast, Catholic Baptist, Jayhawk, Wildcat, Coke, Pepsi, it's all torn down. We are one new family, accepted equally because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. None of these divisions can hold a candle to the unifying power of the cross of Christ. So, Hugh Halter and Matt in The Tangible Kingdom writes this. When talking about community and otherness, I think we sometimes forget that all the passages on community, the one and that we're called to, weren't written to just white evangelicals or Hispanic communities or affinity-based small groups. The context is actually quite in opposition to what we're used to. They speak to people who are divided by ethnic lines, deep traditions, skin color, and alternative worldviews. The call of community isn't about finding people just like us, or at the exclusion of any people, community in the biblical sense is clearly about unlike people finding Christ at the center of their inclusive life together. Thus, issues of community reflect reflect powerful dynamics of how God brings very diverse people together for his glory and his witness in the world. So, I want to talk just for a moment about what then makes Christian community so special, so different, than other clubs or organizations that you can be a part of, that you can give your time, money, volunteer hours to. What makes the Christian church special? So Tim Tim Keller wrote an article called Five Features That Made the Early Church Unique. He says this, Before Christianity, there was no distinct religious identity, since your religion was simply an aspect of your ethnic or national identity. If you were from this city or from this tribe or from this nation, you worshipped the gods of that city, tribe, or people. Your religion was basically assigned to you. Christianity brought into human thought for the first time the concept that you choose your religion regardless of your race and class. Isn't that interesting? That's an interesting point where so much of the world sees Christianity as regressive and oppressive. It actually, uh, people think that Christianity takes away all of your choices and makes you some kind of brick in the wall. And what Keller argues is that actually, individual choice opened up at the advent of the church, that you could actually be from wherever in the world and choose whatever religion you decided to follow. That did not exist before. Isn't that fascinating? It's a fascinating point, I think. Christianity also radically asserted that your faith in Christ became your new deepest identity while at the same time not effacing or wiping out your race, class, or gender. Instead, your relationship to Christ demoted them to second place. This meant to the shock of Roman society that all Christians, whether slave, free, or highborn, or whatever their race and nationality, were now equal in Christ. This was a radical challenge to the entrenched social structure and divisions of Roman society, and from it flowed at least five unique features, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But I want you to catch that point as well, is that Christianity said no matter if you're, you're rich or poor, you're white or black, you are all accepted equally before the cross of Christ through Jesus, what, what I just talked about earlier. Every other culture has striations in their, in their social classes that says if you're rich, if you're white or whatever color at the time or, or, or uh, specific to that, that uh, uh, nationality, you, you are accepted and therefore we're going to pair you with this stratus of religion to practice. It's about a social thing. It's, it's a social interaction. Christianity came and blew up that caste system and said, Doctors... And prostitutes are accepted equally through the grace of God and can worship in the church together sitting next to each other. And that's what you had happen. They they didn't call each other doctor this or so-and-so that or lawyer this. It was brother and sister and they greeted each other with a holy kiss as was the culture at the time. Can you imagine that? That blew things up in the Roman culture. It it flattened everything. Everything. So the five unique features of the early church, creating community. It was a community where multiracial, and exp- uh, they, they were multiracial and they experienced unity across ethnic boundaries. When we look at the movement of God's spirit through the book of Acts, for example, we see a broad coalition of people from all kinds of races and ethnicities united to a startling degree to the Roman culture in order to form community and further the Jesus mission of preaching the gospel to the nations. Look at Antioch. Think uh, Acts 13. They have people from all over the place laying hands on, on Paul and Barnabas and sending church planters out to further the mission of Jesus. It was the only time in history where just everybody could come together like that, practice their religion freely in front of each other, and, be, and commission others to go out to other nations and other ethnicities. Two, they were a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. Even while Christians experienced criticism, exclusion, imprisonment, and persecution, including martyrdom, they taught radical forgiveness and withholding retaliation. The goal was turning enemies into friends for the sake of the kingdom. Third, they were famous for their hospitality to the poor and the suffering. Everyone was expected to care for their own family and their own tribe. Everyone everywhere does that, right? But Christians were known to be extravagant givers and remain in cities where disease and plague was rampant in order to care for the dying. Often they paid the price with their very own lives. They were known to be promiscuous in generosity towards the poor. That was one designation of the early church. Fourth, they were a community committed to the sanctity of life. This goes further than, than abortion. Abortion was pretty, pretty rare in the first century because of the um, inexperience and the cost of it. But the Romans practiced infant exposure where the paterfamilias, the father of the household, could accept or reject a newborn baby based on gender. So, so uh, baby girls were not as desirable as, as baby boys because boys carried on the family name. They had rights. They could vote, own land, so on. Uh, If there was any kind of of, uh, different ablement, any kind of deformity, so to speak, in the paterfamilias' eyes, they could take the baby and set it out and toss it out, actually, in in the city garbage heap and leave it to die. Christians instead rescued them, saw them as image bearers, saw them as the imago Dei, carriers of God's image. And so they went and they rescued babies did not belong to them, but raised them as their own in their own household. And fourthly, they upheld a sexual counterculture. While Roman women were expected to remain chaste, men of the time were almost required to have sex with people lower on the social ladder as an expression of status. Christians seemed prudish, though, as they taught sexual appetite should be controlled and expressed only towards one's spouse. And they saw women as equal partners because they also fully resent, uh, represent the Imago Dei. So the results of this unique community, because those, those sound peculiar, unique, especially in our culture, but especially in the Roman culture. But the results of this speak for itself. It's such that Christians numbered about 1,000 total people in AD 40. Which was .0017% of the world's population at that time. But by AD 30, the church had grown to 33.8 million. Or represented 565 of, of the world's population. That's exponential growth. That is like, let my stock portfolio have those returns, please, right? That is like Vegas odds. Whatever, however you figure those up, Right? How do we account for this exponential growth? Certainly, it wasn't about following the five rules or five unique features as strict uh, uh, rules to, to adhere to. No, instead, the rules were, uh, uh, be for, instead of the rules being a precursor for differentiation, their behavior as an overflow of the gospel and the new life created by the Spirit formed them into something unique and powerful that was desirous by the Roman culture and, and other cultures in the world. They elevated children, women. They, they, they said, control all of your appetites, whether it's hunger or sexuality or whatever expression, like show affection to your spouse and your spouse only. That was, it was weird. But people experiencing brokenness said, you know, there might be something to that. There might be something to, the, to this Jesus where these people love, like, like the, Roman, the Roman rulers noted, these people love our people better than we do, right? Can you imagine the government going, I don't know, this church thing is weird, but they take care of the poor, widows, children better than our government can ever possibly do. We need to learn from them how to actually care for people, it was the gospel that brought a diverse group together and forged them in the fires of conflict, both internal and external to the church. And they were bo- bonded together by the unifying cry of God's love, experienced in Jesus, which compelled them to welcome everyone still outside God's family. So Jonathan and Melissa Helzer uh, have written a series of books. One of them is called uh, Cultivate. They said this, Jesus created home everywhere. You could just substitute the word community everywhere, home everywhere. He tied a tenth of his life on earth to ministry. And when he did ministry, it looked like family. It looked like home. It looked like meals and laughter, tears and sorrow, walking and talking intentionally, living life together. It looked like flying high moments of feeding the 5,000, healing the crowd, speaking on the mountain to the hungry hearts, seeing eyesight returned and endless bleeding stop, and then effortlessly landing emotionally, spiritually, and physically with a tiny group of friends. He knew how to teach them to fly high in faith and boldness and then to land in a home of friendship with each other and understanding of the kingdom. And this is the heartbeat of the church. It's just continuing on the Jesus mission to do life, to create home, to create community, tight friendship bonds together. It's the heartbeat that has reverberated throughout the centuries down to us. And this is the supernatural power of community that we are called to experience. The Apostle John, Jesus, one of Jesus' best closest friends and followers said this in 1 John 4, 7. He said, dear friends, he says, beloved friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us first and sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sin. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And what I want you to pay attention to is how often John uses either the phrase one another or the words we and us. Because love, to really be expressed, really requires someone else to be a part of it. To actually be a, 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 be a love, be, be love in someone's life requires that we draw close and there be someone else there. That's why we worship a God we recognize as Trinity. God is community, but it's a community of love, and love requires someone else to love. God loves himself perfectly, and he is love. And he invites us, he calls us to community, to be in community, a community of love as well. Now, when I read this, often there is a visceral feeling that accompanies this. There have been many who have been hurt in community, specifically Christian community. We've experienced the dark side of community where those who say they represent Jesus have done just the opposite and manifested the ugliness of our fallen human condition. So what do we make of that? We certainly can't ignore it. First, just know that I'm sincerely sorry for the hurt that you've experienced in community. Whether it's been family, whether it's been church, whether it's been a small group, whether a leader said something, did something, or didn't say or do something that caused hurt in your life. I'm, I'm sorry for that. I make no excuse. I've been on the receiving end. Here, here's the thing as a, as a pastor, you're not exempt from church hurt. It goes both ways. So I've been on the receiving, but also I've been on the giving in. And I've, I've had made a lot of apologies and, and do a lot of repair in relationships over the years. So I'm sorry for that. As much as I can muster some authenticity as a, as a shepherd, as a spiritual leader. I, uh, I can't promise you pain-free community. I don't think that exists. There's nothing. There's no such thing as a pain-free marriage. There is such a thing as growing together, forgiving and reconciling. Now, we want everybody to be safe. Hurt and harm, as I shared on a couple weeks ago, is different. No one deserves to be harmed, abused, have, have trauma. So we want you to be safe. But hurt, hurt is inevitable because there are things that just happen. So I can't promise you to never experience that. Well, but what I can promise you is a community that will surround you and love and navigate those tensions together with you. In the show West, The West Wing, any West Wing fans out there? Leo McGarry tells a modernized version of the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan to Josh Lyman. Josh Lyman had been shot. He was, had some um, post-traumatic stress, and he was just having a lot of, lot of trouble uh, reintegrating into his job at the White House. Leo tells Josh, this guy's walking down the street when he falls in a hole. The walls are so steep he can't get out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, hey you, can you help me out? The doctor writes a prescription, throws it down in the hole and moves on. Then a priest comes along and the guy shouts up, father, I'm down in this hole, How can you help me out? The priest writes out a prayer, throws it down in the hole and moves on. Then a friend walks by, hey Joe, it's me, can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. Our guy says, are you stupid? Now we're both down here. And the friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. We may be hurt in community, but I believe that we're also healed in community. Not isolation as we so often imagine we can be. So here's my invitation to you this week and have the worship team come come forward, come on up. Here's my invitation to you. And we can even begin now uh, as we walk this out together before God. I invite you to bring your hurt and your doubt about community to Jesus. You can start even now in in the closing worship time. Remain as as open as you can to how you can heal and flourish in community. So I'd love to pray for you. Why, why don't you stand with us? If you're at home or listening later, just get in a, a position where you can, a space where you can engage God in his presence. I'd love to invite you to just bring anything that feels triggering, anything that feels like you're resisting the call to community. It might be hurt, it might be doubt, it might just be you're not even convinced that this is a thing. That's Okay. We can handle that. God can handle all of that. What I'd invite you to do is just bring it here. And you might even, I like to sometimes just put my hands like right here, like I'm holding something. This is a position of surrender. It's a position of openness. It's just an external, there's nothing magic about this. Sometimes I just feel like I I just need to hold something in front of God and see what he says about it. So why don't you bow your heads with me? And if you want to, you can put your hands in front of you. So God, we're here, we've heard your scripture, we've heard your call to community. We see, we see all around us the the division and hurt and misunderstanding. We, We wonder why people can't just get along and yet we are so, we feel powerless sometimes to know what to say or what to do to bring hope and healing to the people around us let alone the bigger problems that our nation and our world face with division. So, God, we want to start right here and in our own community and in our own lives. So we just bring this hurt, this church hurt, this hurt that, that causes walls to go up, the hurt that, that causes us to, to get into this You know, mental debate about why I'm disqualified or I don't need to be a part of community. I'm different than everybody else. We just bring all of that. We bring doubt. Some of us here just not sure what we believe about you, God. We like Jesus. We just think the church is a mess. We bring all of that to you and ask you to speak to that now, God. I ask you to speak to that this week, God. And what we ask is that we could remain open to take a step with you into community as a way of life, God. So we ask for your grace. We ask for your patience. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be with us. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit church.